Hello, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. Reminder, you can watch Between the Sheets live on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash critical role or catch it on YouTube on Wednesdays at youtube.com slash critical role. On today's episode, I sat down with the wonderful Marisha Ray. Marisha is a force of nature, and this episode really speaks for itself as to how and why she became this person that we all love today. She also dives into her role as creative director for our new channel, which is awesome. And just a heads up, part of this conversation touches on sexual assault, which may be difficult for some listeners. Uh, Enjoy this conversation with the lovely Marisha Ray. Marisha, yeah. thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you. What are we drinking today? <laughs> These are jalapeno margaritas, Ooh. something that I enjoy. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, oh. we. when I talked mm. to you about this, this drink came up, and I was like, that's delicious. Mm-hmm. We hadn't had any tequila-featured mm. drinks yet, and gods, do I love tequila. It's good. You know, it's the only upper, they say, as far as the hard alcohols Interesting. go. Interesting. Is that the one they say, like, tequila makes you horny and all that shit? Who says that? Hmm, maybe Who told I, you that? Maybe just me. Maybe that's just me. You grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky. Whereabouts? Just south of Louisville. Mm-hmm. It's Louisville for Louis- the locals, not this Louisville or Louisville. Right, right, right. Fuck that. No, Louisville. Louisville. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, I'd say about like uh, 30, 45 minutes south in a small town called Mount Washington, Kentucky. How small a town is it or was it at the time? At one point, I'm pretty sure it's much more now. At one point in our little like town sign when you drive in, I think it was population like around 8,000. Wow. Um, I had about 115 kids in my graduating class in high school. Wow. I feel like that's always a good... Barometer for yeah, how barometer. small the town it was. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Because right. I've, like, I talked to other people, especially people who went to high school in, like, big metropolises. They were like, we had, like, 1,200 kids in our graduating class. Some, like, upwards even more of that. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, everybody knew everybody. I, I was just going to say, yeah. You and They were a, a few different middle schools and high schools, but it wasn't uncommon to go from kindergarten to senior year with a lot of the same kids. Wow. So, a lot of small town gossip. Everybody knows each other's stuff. Everyone knows each other's stuff. I remember I went to this party once in high school. Uh, Classic house party, parents are out of town for the weekend, let's go over and drink. And I drank a little too much, ended up like puking in a bush outside. It was a great time, it was amazing. high school. I, and then we all like crashed at the house that night and I drove home and I, I probably like told my parents that it was like some sleepover with the dance team or something highly inaccurate. So I drove home. By the time I had gotten home, by the time we all woke up and in the like 15 minutes it took me to get home, like one kid's parent or one kid told their parent about me, which told another parent, which was like, well, my mom was the town dog groomer. So they'd be like, oh, well, let's just call up Melanie and tell her. So by the time I had gotten home and I pulled in, she was like, 
heard from so-and-so that uh, you had a good time last night. Fifteen people have called her by that point and described in detail everything that you had done. And I was like, how the... Yeah, that's small small town living. The shit! Mm -hmm. Yeah, couldn't couldn't get away from it. Snitches get stitches. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What is growing up in a small town in Kentucky like besides that closeness of, you know, because you have a sister. Yes. Uh, Any other siblings? No other siblings. No other siblings. Younger I was, sister. Um, younger sister. We're thirteen years apart. Wow. So she was a surprise. You were you were a teenager when she was born. Yeah, I, I basically was very adapted to being the only child, and I was living my only child life and loving it. And then this thing came along, and I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Surprise. Um, surprise. Yeah. So it was a total adjustment. For me, and then by that age, like both of my parents were work full time, you know, dual dual income household. You have to, you know, they're both pretty much blue collar mm. parents. Like I said, my mom is a dog groomer, and my dad sell uh, he sells truck tires to like fleets. Like waste management is one of his biggest clients. Right, right. So all those semis that you see driving down the street, someone's got to sell those semis tires. Right. It's my dad. So. That meant by the time my little sister came around, I was throwing up in parents. bushes. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> right. You were. I was yeah. like token babysitter, mm-hmm. just in family babysitter. You know, so in a, in a weird way, there was a lot of times, kind of in those early months, that like it kind of felt like I was also helping raise my little sister. Right. Um, of course, by the time I got my license when I was sixteen, I was one of those kids that was like. Bye. Doing my thing. I got wills now. Can't keep me down, bitches. Right. So yeah, I, I was kind of definitely gone by the time I had a car. Um, but no, I mean Kentucky was great. I, I still have fond memories of it, but I don't regret leaving in the slightest. What age were you when you got into dancing? I think my parents put me in dance class when I was seven years old. Did you like it immediately, or did, was it they wanted you to do it, get I, you out of the house? Or I loved it. I mean, a little bit of both. I was, um, I was a very secure and kind of cocky little shit as a kid. Once again, I was an only, only child. child. <laughs> right, right. I was always a lot more mature, probably because, because I was an only child. I hung out with adults more. You know, my mom always said I had like an old soul. My dad said I was just weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just depends on how you look mm-hmm. at it. Right. Um, and so I always, I would do things like force my parents to sit down when I put on Wizards of Oz, Wizard of Oz behind me. And then I would reenact the entire movie in front of the movie and while would force them while it was playing mm. and would force them to watch my little one act play, this one man play of me doing Wizard of Oz. And uh, then I would do, I would put on dance recitals at, at the house. So my mom was like, we're gonna put you in dance lessons. And my response to her as a seven year old was, I don't need dance lessons. I already know how to dance. I've mastered it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if you want me to go to teach the other kids how I, guess I I'll got consider as good it. Yeah, right, right. We'll have to talk about a payment plan. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my mom was like, okay. Okay, poof, and like threw me in dance classes. And sure enough, I mean, right out of the gate, I was entranced. I was in love. 
Um, you had a lot more to learn than you thought I realized you did. I had a lot more to learn and that I was interested in learning this. And what kind of dancing was it? Generally in in you know when you're starting with like little little kid dancing, you always have like your typical ballet class mm. that you start with. And then I was also doing a little bit of tap and then a little bit of uh, what we called lyrical back in the day. What's that? Kind of Twyla Tharp, kind Ooh. of modern-y jazz. I'm gonna dance to Madonna's Frozen and be mm. like, uh. it's a little bit more what you see in in modern mm -hmm. dance styles. Mm -hmm. It's less like rigid and technique and ballet. Um, so that was like my favorite. And I always had like a solo class. I always, my parents always paid for me to have a private lesson as well. And so, so you did group lessons and then a private mm -hmm. thing? Wow. I started, there, were, there was a time where I, I was in dance almost six days a week. Did you? At a certain point. Wow. <clears throat> did you ever want to do that when you were that? I'm obviously, what you want to do as a kid for the rest of your life changes yeah. every year. Depending yeah, yeah, on yeah. What you're interested in, what your friends are doing, what you're studying in school totally. changes all the time. Did you ever think, I want to, I want to dance? Dance professionally? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I knew I wanted to do, I knew it wasn't enough. I knew I wanted to do more. And then my dance studio got a musical theater teacher. They hired on a musical theater and voice teacher, hmm. Melody Stacy. And uh, then that whole thing was introduced because it was like, oh, there's this like, dance is great, but then there's this whole other realm of dancing and singing and also acting. And then it was like, oh, I learned there were these things called triple threats. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, that just sounds... Someone that so can do badass. all of those can things. Do all of it. Mm. And I was like, that's me. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a triple threat. Uh, and then you transition into doing theater and stuff? Mm hmm. Around how old were you when that happened, when that change you just talked about happened? You decided you I wanted must to be have a pre got. 10 or. Yeah, yeah. A pre got. Pre got. <laughs> a pre got, yeah. <laughs> pre me got. Uh huh. Uh, <laughs> that, I must have been. 11? 10 or 11? Mm. Yeah, so he comes in with this newfangled thing that I'd never heard about. And it was... Which was cats. Cats. I got thrown into that, and that was the first thing that we did as a musical. But th that was the first time. I mean, we were getting brought on these stages. We were renting stages in Louisville that were like 3,000-seat you know, theaters. Not that we were filling 3,000, not 11-year-olds were right. filling 3,000 seats. Right, but, but I was going to ask about that because in that small of a town, there must have only been a couple of productions a year to be able to do. So you probably had to go to the bigger cities to yeah, perform. Yeah, we I had to drive into Louisville. Mm. And, and a lot of that was, like I said, out of like our private studio. And it was just kind of basically the end recital of the year. Wow. So I, it wasn't even really professional theater in any way. But all of that did end up leading me to, to um, the Louisville Ballet Company was doing Nutcracker. And you need kids to do like the party girl scenes right. and the little toy soldiers. So I started working with Louisville Ballet doing the Nutcracker. And then that transitioned to the Actors Theater of Louisville doing uh, Best Christmas Pageant Ever. They oh, did yeah. every year. And I ended up doing Best Christmas Pageant Ever professionally with them 
um, from like eighth grade through to like junior year. Like I would just audition and they kept, kept bringing me kept back. Bringing back. And yeah, and we would do from like, we had a A cast and a B cast and we would just rotate back and forth because we were still kids that still had to go to like school. Mm -hmm. But we would do two shows a day and you would either do three days a week or two days a week, depending on what rotation you were yeah. on. And I started doing that when I was in eighth grade, eighth grade. What did you feel like when you were on stage? What, what, was, what, what happened to you? Because for everybody, there's similarities, but there's mm -hmm. also a unique moment or feeling or emotion yeah. that struck them when they went out on stage, most of them as kids, and yeah. it stuck with them and they said, I want to keep, I want to keep replicating this feeling. I feel like it, I had a few, it had a few stages because, I mean, I still remember the first time that I stepped on stage just for the dance recital. And that was, I mean, it felt like, it felt like going to purgatory or like dying. It felt like stepping into this other dimension because mm. you go out and you're alone and it's just you in this big, amazing space and the lights come on and you're like, it, I mean, it was just there is no euphoria that could ever top it. And still in my adult years, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever, nothing can stop, like can top that feeling mm. of coming out onto a stage. I mean, that's why we still love that when we do our live shows right. with Critical Role, just that, that initial feeling of just coming out. And it really is that live audience feedback. You get this reaction. And I'm an introvert, by the way. I'm not someone who's like, give me so much attention. Right. But it's different when it's, and it's a relationship. And it's, you know, if you can command the audience and the audience can fuel what you're doing. And it is a, a cycle mm. that you experience when you're up there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so I feel like the first time that I realized that the stage was incredible was early in those dance years. I pretty much knew early on that I wanted to do something in terms of acting or theater. I knew that my life was going to go in the direction of entertainment in some way. Mm. Um, and it just took a few years to fully crystallize what that was going to be. And still is, to be fair. But that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. And you have to have that resilience and that patience yes. and that hard work ethic to see it through. It's not, it's not that anybody with talent ends up being successful. We know that's not the case. We right. know a lot of extremely talented people who nobody knows about. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it is, I mean, Travis talked a little bit about this in his episode where you do have to kind of go with the flow sometimes. Like I'm... I'm glad that I wasn't so stubborn in my ideas of what I thought that I wanted to do, mm -hmm. that it didn't leave me open-minded enough to discover new things that I didn't even know I wanted to do. Like what? Um, I mean, like, I mean, first it was like dance and dance went to musical theater and then musical theater went to just straight acting in Shakespeare. Mm. And then after coming out to Los Angeles, that translated into voiceover <clears throat> and stuff like that that I mean I voiceover was never a goal ever 
it just... It's not something kids usually think about. No, um, not at all. I, I've heard so many people say, you don't, when you're watching stuff as a kid or, you know, as a young person, mm -hmm. you don't realize, oh, there's a person behind that voice. Right. That's just the way that gummy bear just, talks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Magic. That's it. Amazing. It's magic. Yeah. And I mean, and that was the other thing that I actually ended up discovering that I had no idea that I would have fallen in love with in the way that I did, mm. which was everything behind the camera and producing and writing and stuff that I'm now doing now. Because, mm. I mean, if you would have told me as a kid, you know, you're going to end up being a producer on top of other things, I would have been like, fuck that, I'm a star. Not, not, yeah, that's not a good That's enough, not me. Right, you don't even have an understanding of what that really right. means at that time. I don't time. belong behind the camera, I belong in front of it. Instant rejection of that. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In high school, besides, you know, throwing up in the bushes and being caught by your mom because it's a small town, yeah. uh, you're doing productions, you're doing stuff like that. In the regular social aspect of high school, yeah. what kind of a teenager were you? Were you nerdy back then? Did that develop later um, or earlier? I, I was nerdy. I was, I wouldn't say I was popular. Um, but I, I was very content with the friends that I had. But I was definitely looked at as kind of this, the kind of theater, weirdo, artsy, nerdy kid. Um, but I was also kind of living two social lives because I was in the public school system in Bullock County, Kentucky, but then also spending almost every day after school with this whole other circle of friends that I was doing dance and theater with in Louisville. Mm. So I think because I had those people and I had them early on starting at a younger age at seven, by the time I had gotten to middle school and high school and the typical popularity games and the clicks start happening, I didn't, f I wasn't as thirsty. I wasn't as needy for acceptance or attention. in my high school or attention. And I remember going from, like going from middle school to high school is one culture shock. I think it was a way bigger culture shock going from elementary school to middle school. Because hmm. you suddenly have lockers. You don't have to line up to go to the potty. Right. You don't, I remember riding the bus and like that's such a weird transformative few years. Mm -hmm. So the kids in sixth grade who are like, what, 11 versus the kids who are 13 and 14. It's a big jump. It's a big, a lot happens right. in those years. And I remember I had one of my best friends in elementary school. That first day in, in middle school at lunch, and there was clearly like a popular girl's table. And it was so important for my friend, we'll call her Jay, uh, to be accepted by these girls. And I remember I sat at the table because I was sitting next to Jay, but she was trying to be included and she was a totally different person. Mm. It was like that overnight. Like she didn't want to talk about the nerdy stuff anymore because now it was talking about you know, Boy Meets World and the right. lip gloss and have you read this? And I remember, 
I remember just being so confused. I was like, why are you acting weird? Mm. And I was trying to still make conversation. So I was like, um, anyone playing Tomb Raider? And they all looked at me like, what are you, you're crazy. Right. What, what, Tomb what? And I was like, PlayStation, everyone plays video games, right? You have a PlayStation, right? And they were like, no, we don't, we don't like that. And there was a boy behind me at the table directly behind us and he heard me say it and he turned around and he went, you talking about Tomb Raider? And I was like, are you playing right now? He's like, yeah, I'm at this like second level and I can't figure out, I fell in a pit and I can't figure out. And I was like, oh my God. And I picked up my tray, went over and I sat at the boys table, talked about video games the rest of the time and I never, I never went back. Wow, it's interesting that, it. that seeing someone act in a way that you know they're not, you immediately were rejected by that and went, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna be fake about my interests or to hide the stuff that really yeah. makes me me just for the sake of popularity. And I was like, I was bored by their conversations and I was like, I don't really like these girls. Like they were being, and like half of the conversation, if it wasn't about, you know, lip gloss or Seventh Heaven, which are all fine conversations, by the way. I'll I'll talk about lip gloss with you. Great show, great product. Great product, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the other half of the conversation was all this like catty gossip and like being mean to other people, and I was like, well, she was our friend though. Like over the summer, why are we being mean to her? I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. And it just it confused me, and like I said, I, I think had I not already kind of been working at myself at a young age and already kind of knew a lot about what I liked and what I was into and had friends that could support that. It didn't, I didn't crave it. You didn't I need didn't, that. I didn't need it. Um, and then, I mean, that kind of spurred into a lot of things. The, the weirder that they, the, all the kids called me, the more, you know, names that they threw at me. And I remember, <laughs> Back in the day, this was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, late 90s. So they called me a lesbian. Like, that's a bad thing because, like, that like was, like, an, a, insult. an insult back mm. then. It was mm. like, well, you're just the weirdo lesbian. And I was like, yeah, girls are hot. Like, I was that person. Like, mm -hmm. the more you poke at me, the more. And then I was like. There's not much of a response to that. Yeah. But it's hard to come up with the, like, it's hard to yeah, come up with sure. the secondary insults. <laughs> right. Uh, you're like, haha, you like girls. You're like, girls are hot. Girls are great. Wait, I also think girls are oh, hot. Damn, fuck. Wait, what do mm. I do? Man, <laughs> I don't. Short out. <laughs> she's, she's not giving me anything. She's saying stuff I so. agree with. Yeah. Damn, I don't understand. <laughs> Wait, what if she takes the girls that I like? Yeah. <laughs> you're sitting there over, over there going, already did. Buddy. It's like, you already know, did. please, please. <laughs> What other nerdy stuff were you into besides video games? You got into video games young, yeah, that's awesome. Got into video games young, yeah. My dad like got me an NES for Christmas, and and then we got a PlayStation. And like, like I said, I was playing Tomb Raider because you know when you get a game console for Christmas, your parents are like, I just spent. 350 bucks on a game console, you get one game. You get game. one game for the next year until Christmas or maybe right. your birthday. Or you work for your allowance for the next four months to mm -hmm. buy the next game. Mm -hmm. uh, so the one game that I got was Tomb Raider. And that 
that also kind of like changed the way that I thought about what video games could be and what this industry could be. And, How come? Because um, it was a female. It was a female game with right. Yeah, it was a female protagonist or I guess anti-hero you could almost call Laura Croft. And I think that's what it was. It was because people always make jokes about Laura Croft kind of being a terrible person. Mm. She's only there to steal artifacts from the tomb before the bad guys that you're playing against are trying to get there to steal it before you. Yeah. So it's just a game of who can be shittiest faster. <laughs> um, and But that's what it was. It wasn't because any other time you kind of saw a video game in, or a female in video games beforehand, she was always the one to be rescued. She was mm -hmm. the princess in another castle or mm -hmm. there to be the moral compass. And then there was this girl in crop shorts and a crop top with guns. And the first thing you do is you run in and you shoot a tiger. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, right, right. Okay. And it was it was just a different way that we'd really seen women in that Mm -hmm. medium before. I mean, you could argue we had Samus, but the whole but Samus being a female was a part of the the reveal of yes. Whoa, your perceptions suck, bro. <laughs> we just blew up. Turn the tables on you. Well, the whole you time, right? You know, which is great, but we didn't. You didn't necessarily go through the entire mm -hmm. game thinking of Samus With as that knowledge a and... badass female. Mm. You know. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of the first time you'd seen anything like that. And that really, that solidified me being the gamer I was today. I didn't get into things like tabletop games until I moved out here though. I had Magic the Gathering in high school because it was introduced to me by a guy I was dating at the time. So I had Magic the Gathering, which I loved. It was amazing. But I didn't have... D&D, &D, it was even hard for me to get a hold of comic books sometimes. I've read mm -hmm. a little bit of comic books. I was super into the X-Men TV show, the cartoon show. Oh, right, Back right, in the day. Right. Um, because I was in the middle of a small town in Kentucky. Not so, a lot of exposure. Not a lot of, yeah. yeah. And the satanic panic mm -hmm. hangover from that, from, you know, in the, in the 80s, was still lingering. And it had just almost been, like, eradicated. Mm. So... And it, I mean, it never came back. There wasn't like a market or a drive for it to come back. Wow. So yeah, I didn't play D&D &D for the first time until uh, I moved out to, to Los Angeles. Wow. Um, but yeah, I was always, always in a nerdy shit, but it was the nerdy shit that I had access to. Beyond that, like my parents were always into it. My dad played video games with me, you know. Um, That's fun. Yeah, it was great. They weren't, and that's the thing. My parents didn't keep D and D away from me because they had an issue with it. They just didn't know about they it just either. Didn't know about it because it wasn't really accessible when at I, that yeah. time where you were. They were like, mm, whatever. My parents were children of the seventies. They're like, whatever. They have fun. I met your parents. They have fun. You have my parents. They have fun. Where did you end up going to college? I ended up going to college at this little performing arts school called Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I knew I wanted to go to school for theater, for acting specifically, 
by that time in my life, I'd kind of dance had kind of fallen away a little bit. I knew, I knew it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted, because um, that dancer lifestyle, that, that dancer brutal. career cho- career choice is brutal. It's brutal. I, I have friends that still do it to this day, and they're in their, their mid thirties, and it's a grind. It, yeah, mm-hmm. it like there are so many ways in which ballerinas and football players have similarities in my opinion absolutely like absolutely no i completely agree with that one even getting into like a studio or a company is near impossible impossible. and then and then you're just destroying your body Mm -hmm. so um yeah i knew that i wasn't up for that but i'd really fallen in love with acting so i wanted to go to college for that so we had unifieds like college audition we just called them the unifieds but basically 30 colleges would come and they would send scouts you would go in front of this room and you would do two monologues a modern and a classic sounds just terrifying move along yeah do you remember the monologues that you did yes i did uh uh i think i did desdemona from othello which I've had that monologue for forever. And then I did um, Trudy from <laughs> Steel Magnolias. A great film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was that experience like, going from a small town, and obviously we talked about what that small town life is like, but then you're in a super big city like Pittsburgh, but then you're also, college is scary enough, you're 18, you're... 18, new city. New city. Cocky new as fuck. People. Yeah, you've got confidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Sometimes I look back at 18-year-old Marcia and I'm like, damn. Like, was I a little shit? Yeah, but I wish I had just like an ounce of that a little bit left. Not that it's gone, but... Of what part? Confidence. Mm. The blind confidence. The blind confidence before the world is like, yeah. smacked you down one too many times and you... You get a little too aware. You've seen into the matrix too far. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, you had a co-ed dorm yes. in college you, that you stayed in. Yeah. What was that experience like? Well, because I had um, probably like a, a more progressive college that I think so you could choose if you wanted to live on an all-female or you know all gender, same gender floor, or if you wanted a co-ed gender floor. And I was like, well, I'm co-ed like all the way. Uh, Because you had sort of identified a little bit better with the interests that guys had versus what some of the girls were interested in at your age at the time, right? Guys were always some of my best friends, so I was like, yeah, there's no need for me to be on an all-female floor. And uh, so I was like, this is going to be great. And, you know, when you go to a new place and you don't know anybody for the first time, you reach out to the people around you first to be like, I'm, a, I'm alone, friends, can we be friends? Can you be, you wanna be friends? We can mm-hmm. all be friends. And so, and we all kind of did that and performing art schools, there was actually a lot of kids that were coming in from out of state and no one knew each other. So like that first day we were going around and knocking on each other's doors and being like, hey, I'm your neighbor. If you ever need a cup of sugar, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we were just kind of getting to know the people on our floor first. And uh, one of the guys I was on the floor with, uh, we'll call him S for the purpose of this. Uh, 
he was there for film and production and other stuff like that. And right, it was a performing arts performing arts school, school yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, we kind of there was this cool little like posse that we had kind of formed from our floor. So one day, uh, I was talking with with S and. Jaws ended up getting brought up, and I love the movie Jaws. Yeah, and I love Jaws. Mm -hmm. It was one of my mom's favorite films, so by proxy, she like forced it to mm -hmm. me all the time. <laughs> and I mean, it's a great film, so love Jaws. Of course. And I was like, I have a DVD of Jaws, or I got a copy of it. Like, let's let's watch. So, had like a little little dorm like watch party of Jaws. Uh. <laughs> Not even like, like it was like the first or second shark attack had happened. Just getting going. Graffiti on the on the billboard, hmm. and S reaches over and very unprompted puts his hand down my pants. And there was and and once again like and it's hard to even try and explain myself because I immediately feel like. I have to justify my behavior, that I wasn't doing anything. So I, every time I tell this story, I'm like, I was just sitting there, we weren't making out, I was in like sweatpants and pajamas, wasn't looking particularly hot. It wasn't that you two escalated to a point that you were uncomfortable with, and you said, all right, that's far enough. Correct. It sort of it just came out happened. of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. And I was like, I'm, I'm, this is not that situation, like I'm, I misled you in any way? Nah, I just uh, Richard Dreyfus's just. glasses has. Right, right. Oh man, come on, Richard Dreyfus. You're missing um, the best part. Right. Whatever you can say, <laughs> exactly. to sort of, right? Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine what that that uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I told him no. It's fine. Ten minutes or so later, he tries the exact same move again. Ten minutes going by and it was nothing. All of a sudden, just total disregard. Uh, on a mission there, and, it, and it's like hands are down my pants. Okay, and so he tries it a second time, and that's when I'm like, I, I okay, you have to go, and you do. You reach that point where it's like either he's going to keep trying, and mm -hmm. I'm going to like freeze, and just. Go, he's being a little aggressive, and then you have those thoughts as a woman, too, where you're like, well, if I try to start fighting this guy off, is he going to get even more is it gonna aggressive? Is it going to escalate and mm. it's going to start start fighting me mm. on this? And then that's that type of, that's that embarrassment that I was talking about earlier. All these, like, million thoughts. I mean, it doesn't matter how badass or cocky or strong or how much resolve you thought you had. When you're in these moments, in your, I mean, a thousand things are going through your head. And you're like, what did I do? Is like so much of your first thought. So. Yeah, how did I bring this on myself? myself. Right. right, right. Next morning, wake up, went to class, just trying to scrub my memory of the night before, trying not to think anything of it. And I remember thinking like, do I address this? Do I say anything? What and then and then you have the thoughts of like, what was this? Was was I just assaulted? Was mm. this like sexual assault? No, that that couldn't have been sexual assault. 
And then I kept thinking like, well, you know, well, I, at least I wasn't raped, which is like the worst sentence on the face of the planet. Right, but you're trying to process <laughs> something in real time that you don't understand, so you're... Right, uh, and then in like, like, just because you weren't raped doesn't mean the sexual assaults you just went through was any less traumatic or, mm -hmm. you, you know, like it's, it's a sad day for women when one of the first thoughts is, well, at least I, it wasn't this. And it so easily there. could have been. Mm. And so I was like, you know, you know, it's my friend. I'm, I'm not gonna, it's, I'm just gonna pretend like nothing happened. And then you start thinking about, then, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Seventeen magazine in the back of my head go, 80% of rapes and sexual assault aren't reported. And then you get all this experience as to why. Mm. So I go to class, come back, and like a typical college uh, attendee, I had, me and my roommate had a, one of those little whiteboards on the front of our doors so people could leave us messages. Right. Very, very college, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Hey, bitch. <laughs> um, I came back, and in block kind of capital letters was cunt. Written on the whiteboard outside the whiteboard. Your door, of your dorm room. Yeah. Huh. And I was like, and I kind of look back and forth, and I'm like, how long has this been on there? Uh, fear, quick erase it off, go inside, close the door. Maybe no one saw anything. Whoa, fuck, fuck. And of course I'm like, like that's, that was S, that was this person. Obvious to you because <sighs> none of your friends, that's not the kind of thing you guys Yeah, why, what, what else had to yeah, you're four warranted weeks into school. that mm -hmm. at that point? Come back the next day, go to go to class. Come back in black letters, cocky actress bitch. Next day, whore. This happened every day, every day, every day. For how long? The rest of the year. The rest of the college. The rest year? of my college year. He started. He got tired around March or April. Kind of think started getting bored with it, and backed off. But huh. she's not she's not crawling her way back to me yet from these messages. You, you I'm haven't leaving. gotten Maybe my love letters. Maybe I should give up. Right. Yeah. It's a backwards thinking. Yeah. So he was clearly angry and rejected, and he was like out to make me miserable. Did he it? Wanted to make me miserable. Did, did it, or did you have it? You know, I mean, you you are an ex incredibly strong person, and I think that this obviously plays into your story, but it obviously definitely plays into how resilient you are. But how, how, what effect did that have on you in real time as your ter college is terrifying enough as we've talked about yeah, that first horrible. year. You I have this to fucking deal with. I was 700 miles away from home. And then like I also, I was trying to be an adult. I didn't want to run home to mom and dad, mm. you know? Trying to handle this on my own. Plus it's a confusing set of circumstances. Yeah. And I can see it's it's not very black and white as opposed to some cases. So I can see where telling different people about it, you'll get a different reaction from some people. Obviously right. your parents are going to be incensed and have it, but yeah. I can see where telling someone, you know, someone could say that thing, like you said, well, at least it wasn't this, it's not this. or mm -hmm. you, you, well, you let him it. on or you 
and, invited yeah. it, you know, just because you had a guy over in your dorm room means you invited him to put your hand, his hand down yeah, your pants. Right. But you'll get that from people. And I, and I did. And when I eventually was like, okay, this isn't going away. This isn't stopping. I tried to talk to my RA. Mm -hmm. I tried to talk to my teacher advisor. Um, and all of them said the same thing. Well, were you drinking? Oh, wow. What were you wearing? It's his, his word against yours. I'm sorry, hon, there's not a lot we can do. I don't know if you want to be starting this trouble. Solaris, you, you want to do this? And I mean, like, once again, someone who has emotionally just been under through hell, and that's the response, the response. you get. So that told me everything that I needed to know on if I should pursue it further. You're, like, you're shut down the first time that you try to reach out and get help or tell someone what happened. Why keep doing that? Why, why, why put yourself through that when everybody's answer is, but what did you, what did you do? But what wrong? did you do? What were you wearing? And, what, and that's hmm. what I think people don't understand about sexual assault or, or rape. And when you do go to tell the cops, you go through several layers of, uh, exploitation and embarrassment and it starts with the first time that it happens to you and then it happens every time again through every time you try and get help or report this person and you have to talk to the cops mm. and they're asking you these things it's embarrassing you have to relive that you're thing reliving as well. it and you're embarrassing yourself in front of a whole new and like sh we shouldn't no one should feel embarrassed about this and but no one wants to talk about it eventually i i was losing my mind by like february and this was still going on and you know you can you can only see cunt or cocky actress bitch written on the front of your door so many times. so many times before it starts doing something to you you start at least believing it a little or or like you said just wondering what I did to, to bring this on myself. And, and I think about that too. Like this is the place where I slept at night. Like I couldn't, like, could anyone imagine if you walked home every day in your threshold, the place that you found comfort, if every day you walked up and there was a note on your door being like, dick. A reminder piece of, shit, of that thing. A reminder of this and one an insult at the same time. night. And I'm also knowing that like everyone who walks by my door is seeing this. Mm. It was very public. So I was losing my mind and went to my RA again. And I'm like, what? There ha and I remember just sobbing and I'm, I'm like uh, at my breaking point and I'm in her, her room and I'm like, help me, what do, what do I do? There's gotta be, fuck, I know it's him. And she was like, you can't prove it's him. And I'm like, it's fucking him. My friends were trying to do things to help me like steal his papers, like his schoolwork, and get handwriting samples. You know, they were trying to be good friends. <laughs> Whatever they could to, yeah. To be like, it's this fucking guy. We have to do something. And she was like, can't do anything. She was like, my suggestion to you would be to take the whiteboard off of your door. Oh, how wonderful. Because <laughs> that's going to, that's going to yeah, teach the, him a lesson. And, that's the and, problem. And put, yeah, that's the problem is the whiteboard. Yeah, fuck you, Target. You're inviting, huh. uh, it's the same kind of a thing. We, we put that on, we put that it's on, on, on a woman and say, you're inviting the word cunt to be written on your door by having a whiteboard there, when in actuality, 
all it is is a megaphone for him to say, I'm the cunt. And but yeah, you, it's your responsibility yeah. to take that down to make sure it doesn't happen again versus them going, stop fucking doing this if it's you. And you, you really kind of nailed it on the head. Cause that, I mean, that translates now to when I get so frustrated when people harass people online mm -hmm. and they go and their first excuse is, well, unfortunately, if you choose this life of being in, in the of public, being in the public eye, you're inviting that. No, I'm not. No, you're not. No, I'm not. And that should that and that is the type of perceptions that are damaging and their excuses. And that's what allows this societal behavior to continue. Mm. It was the whiteboard was inviting the word cunt to be written on it. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. That YouTube comment when it's blank, when you open it up, isn't like, be a piece of shit in me, mm -hmm. shit in my mouth, and I'll post it to them. <laughs> like, that's not <laughs> what it is. If that's the way you interpret it, then I think you should reevaluate some things. It's the canvas on which we paint what's inside of us, truly. Yeah. So there was nothing else I could do. So I took the whiteboard down. Guess what happened? Don't tell me he fucking wrote it on the door. In Sharpie. Oh, come on. He just started writing directly on the door. Kept going. How'd Continue you handle on. that? I think I put the whiteboard up because at least he wasn't fucking defacing the door. At least you could erase least... the bullshit that was happening and yeah. I'm trying to, trying to put my mind there at being 18 and all the stuff you already had going on and then trying yeah. to think about this. I did, um, yeah, and then I'm, I'm trying to do college, I'm trying to go to class, I'm in the theater department, I'm, you know, I, mean, I was all over the place. I had one night where I confronted S. So like I said, sort of reaching, I, I, I was insane. I, I was... Trying I, everything I, you could. Yeah, and I don't think you were wrong to say that I was, I was miserable. I, I was pretty miserable at that point. And I think some friends, I'm trying to even remember how this all came to be, but there was, I don't know if it was facilitated with friends trying to like hash it out between me and S, like you could. That'll fix it. Like that'll fix it. But we were in the hall and I remember losing my shit to him in his, in his face. Uh, and being like, and like I said, we had friends there who were kind of like watching this whole thing go down, like, oh fuck. And I remember being like, As, like you, did you try to put your hands on my, you never was that warranted. You tried to do this. And I was like trying to like, once again, kind of, I was like yell whispering, cause mm -hmm. I didn't wanna mm -hmm. still like be like, because once again, it was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you assaulted me. You put your hands on my pants. And he had had this moment too where he snapped and he went, you know what? Yeah, you're right, Marisha. And he started shouting and pacing up and down our floor. And he goes, you're right. I tried to finger Marisha. You hear that everybody tried to finger. I tried to put, I try this. And I just went and I, Next thing that I remember is just my hand jettisoning from my body and I was trying to go for his throat and he like saw it coming very quick and I got his collar. I got his like shirt collar and instant silence from him and I just saw his eyes go like really big and I was grabbing him. I was 
I was about to just fucking beat the shit out. I was. You were gonna suck out his soul, but he didn't have one. I was yes, yeah. I was done, mm. and um, I have him by the throat, and I have him pushed up against the wall to our our door, and I remember him grabbing my hand, and he started going, Marisha, Marisha, let go, Marisha, let go, Marisha, let go. By the way, one of the best, like. Like that, that fear uh, in his eyes mm-hmm. of seeing, of not knowing what I was gonna do next, and he was afraid, and he was like, and I'm like fucking looking at him in his eyes, and then I remember just I felt hands on me from my peers, mm. and I remember like one of my friends in my ear going. Marisha, he's not worth it. Marisha, let go. Marisha, they will throw you out of school. You'll be the one who you gets in trouble. You will get in trouble. If I and 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 then they were they were right. Like and I and I had that. Oh, man, how was that the part that's making me emotional about this? Um, they were right, and it didn't matter what he had done to me. It didn't matter that it had been months of torture. I would have been the fucking bad guy at the end of it. And uh, and I held on to him for a while and I was just like looking at him. And I like, in a while, in, in a way, I'm, I am glad that my friends were there uh, <laughs> to, to talk me off of that. Um, sometimes I look back and I'm like, yeah, even if he would have thrown me out, I went to I went to LA that summer anyway. Like, <laughs> but once again, when you're like 18, mm-hmm. I didn't know if I was if this was gonna follow me. And um, yeah, you don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know. You didn't expect that. You didn't plan for that to happen. Fuck how would no. you have a plan for how to deal with it? And uh, I'll never forget just whispers saying, "He's not worth it. Let go, Marisha." And it was, you have the initial friends that were like, break it up, break it up, break it up. Mm-hmm. And then we, I had a few like girlfriends like talking to me and in they my knew ear. What was going and on. they knew. Um, like, and my, my roommate was very supportive. I love my roommate in college. She was great. Um, you know, and she was kind of there. And once again, she was, everyone was kind of helping in the way that they, we all knew best. We were all fucking dumb 18 year old college kids. We were all stumbling through life, mm-hmm. like the best of us. And, uh, yeah, I, I let go. I think that was actually, that was, that had to have been like March. I don't think he actually fucked with me too much after that. I wouldn't. Like after. I mean, I never would have fucked with you anyway, but I definitely wouldn't have. But it, it had been most of the year until I had that, that confrontation. How do you think that's shaped who you are today? That experience, because like I said, you're somebody that's resilient. You're also somebody that doesn't really take a lot of shit. And I yeah. wonder about how that experience has played a factor in those values you have today. Because, you know, it takes a lot to, it takes a lot to really, you have very thick skin. It takes a lot to get to affect you in that way. Yeah. But how do you um, think that's helped shape who you are now all these years later? I mean, it definitely, um, like, I, I talk about 
kind of the cynicism and kind of underlying anger that I do have. That was definitely a part that kind of fuels it. Because what makes me angry when I think back to all of that is it's like you said, I know I had the resolve to deal with it. And I'm functioning so much in my life through like sheer stubbornness mm. in a weird way, in spite. Um, so I, I had the, the sheer honoriness to deal with it. Um, I know most people don't though. And I think of all the young women or just young people in general, you know, male or female, you know, non-gender binary, whatever, everyone, you know, uh, it, no one should experience what that was. And I, I know that some people, I don't know if they would have survived that. You know, I, I think about people like my little sister who's way more sensitive than I am. And those are the people that I start getting concerned about. You're very um, protective of, of people like that, especially young girls. Yeah, I, I see so many of our fans and the critters mm -hmm. and I've gotten so many messages. These are the people I get defensive of because I, I, you know, people know that I tend to be the, the target of harassment on the internet or mm -hmm. the people that they want to pick on the most out of the rest of the CR cast. And I see these young girls reaching out to me and saying, I, I hope Marisha doesn't see this. I hope Marisha doesn't leave or go away because of these things that people are saying. That, that's one. And then the one that hurts the most is if this is the way that the D&D community or the nerd community is talking to people like Marisha, I don't know if I want to be involved. Wow. I, I, if this is the community that's waiting for me, I don't know if this is, if it's safe for me. Mm -hmm. And that's crushing. That's crushing. And that's what all these people out there need to know. Whenever you think... Whenever you type shut up, Keyleth, when you say shut up, bitch, God, Marisha, you're so stupid, you're not telling that to me. Mm. I'm in my own fucking little world playing D&D, rolling dice. I'm great. You're not talking to me. All those other people see that, though. You're talking to all of these influenceable young people. And fuck you for making them feel like they might not have a place here. Mm. And that's when I, I talk a lot about the responsibility of the community to be welcoming and and Don't forget kind. to love each other, take care Don't of each other. Don't forget to love each other. You know, you talk about it so much. Matt talks about it so much. People like Logic talk about it so much. We're trying to create a safe space for people and to maintain that. Yeah. And it's not always easy. No. Um, and it's not that those are the loudest voices, but they're constant. Yes. And the thing is, is... A lot of times people take our or your um, addressing of those type of comments and, and that sort of harassment feedback 
and they say, yeah, but nobody, nobody pays attention to that. They're, it's a small percentage versus the whole. Um, yeah, don't listen your... to the haters. Don't worry, you're good. Mm -hmm. And like, I thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate all of but that. But you're not worried about how it's going to affect you. You're worried about how it's going to affect that other person yeah. who is saying, I don't know if I want to be a part of this community because there is this element of it that yeah. I'm not really, I'm someone that's maybe more sensitive or not right. equipped I'm not, to handle. I'm, I'm not as, you know, I don't have the emotional bandwidth. Who knows what these people are going on in their, in their lives, you know? Sometimes the last thing that you need is to be thrown into another situation where you're gonna have a bunch of people fucking yelling at you. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, and in, even some of the kind of online bullies that we've talked to, I know so many of them have shit going on and they're using this as their outlet. And I think so many people think that when you say, God, Marisha, fuck, shut up, you're the worst, you think you're screaming into a void but you're not, and you have there's to remember- There's a person remember, behind that comment, and there's a person in front of that comment. Watching all of it happen. And I think the, the most mature realization that any person will come to in their lives, and it kind of comes as a, as a transition from adolescence into adulthood, is recognizing that your actions reverberate into the rest of the world. Your actions have consequences and reactions. And even if you think, man, no one's listening to this. Marisha's not gonna check her tweets. So-and-so's not gonna read this and think like, meh, I'm just screaming into a void. You're not. Mm. We don't live in a vacuum. You're not shouting into a vacuum. When you do something, it fucking butterfly effects into the rest of the world. Think about it, like think about it. Think about who, get out of your self-centered universe for a second and wonder if your selfishness isn't maybe taking away from someone else's potential enjoyment or joy. Mm -hmm. And like, why, why? But hurt like, people hurt people, that's why. Because yeah. you, you know, it's it's interesting thinking of that, thinking of that YouTube comment block as that whiteboard outside your dorm room, and thinking about the yeah. kind of stuff that we see people write about you. And you know, the nice thing is that those of us that know you don't worry about how those comments affect you because we know what we we know what you've been through does it have an effect on you does it does it or is it is it easy for you by now to be able to just go you know it's not true and some of the stuff that is true it doesn't affect me it's who i am yeah. um but there is a person behind there is a person behind that online persona and it does yeah. you know i mean the the words are never great to see it doesn't feel good. Um, uh, I, I think in the way that it, it affects me now, I sometimes, once again, I, I sometimes think, like my RA suggesting, just take down the whiteboard. I think my solution to when I see people yelling at me online is I think, yell it into my inbox 
if it means you're not gonna go after someone like my sister. Wow. Hmm. But that's a little bit of like a martyrdom complex. But I understand the sentiment behind it is, yeah. is I, I'm, I'm, I have thick enough skin, I'm strong enough to take I it. Can There's take others it. who aren't and I right. wanna spare them this. So I'd right. rather take it on myself than have them deal with it. I mean, I've seen so many of our, our young artists end up getting targeted by some of these people and I see the emotional destruction that it can do to them if you're not, you're not anticipating it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, with you, life is hard. The world is infuriating. There are things that make you want to lash out and just scream into the internet about. But the way a girl plays D&D, <sighs> that's what you're gonna choose to put all of your frustration into and your hate? It just, think force, think a little bit ahead, mm-hmm. just a little bit. And, and it doesn't have to do with me. It has nothing to do with me or even them. But when I, when I talk about that responsibility that we have and that we have as a community, that's what I'm talking about. You know, what we're talking about. Because mm-hmm. no one deserves to have anything kept from them. Mm or this joy of D&D, or My Little Pony, or any fandom, no one deserves to have that kept from them just because you think otherwise. Yeah. In the things going on in your world, you, you think gives you a right to say these mm-hmm. things. Don't, don't steal people's joy, man. It's not fair. Fucking well said. <laughs> well said. Cheers. Thank you for going there and talking <sighs> about that. Huh. I haven't no, talked I know about that like ever. I know it's not easy, but mm-hmm. at the same time, those same people that you're being protective of will watch this and be encouraged and understand that like, <clears throat> wow, someone that has found success is strong, intelligent, successful, has also gone through this thing that I have and come out the other side of it. Yeah, and- you'll, you'll be okay. I mean, I think... One of the things that anyone will experience if they are under sexual assault is the victim shaming. Mm. And that's there, it's designed to try and make you feel weak because the power dynamic of rape or sexual assault, it's all about power. And that continues on after the act with victim blaming. Oh my God, you caught it. Of course I did. It was fucking I'm amazing. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that victim shaming is there to continue to make the victim feel like, well, you're weak. You did something. Mm-hmm. And that's, you're, you're not weak. You were wronged, first off. Two, if someone cannot take no as an answer and still doesn't have the amount of self-control to not assault mm-hmm. you, you fucking tell me who's the weak one. Exactly. Blaming you for what happened in college is like blaming Jaws. <laughs> it's, this, it's I mean, ultimately, it's as yeah. stupid as going... 
Well, if you wouldn't have watched Jaws, Jaws. this never would have happened. Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't have had those sexy pajama pants on <laughs> that just leave it all out there, inviting that, someone to... That Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, you straight-laced kids with your caffeine beverages. <laughs> you took the agent up on his offer and left college at 19 years old? 19. And moved to L.A. at 19 years old? Just turned 19. Did you know anyone out here? No, I had one girlfriend in college who was from the Valley, Valley Girl. So when I moved out here, I moved... Um, it's Crystal from Ojai? <laughs> she kind of was Crystal from Ojai. Kind of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Her name was Rainy. That makes sense. Uh -huh. That makes sense. Uh, she was great. But of course, she lived here for the summer, and then she went back to college. So I had her for a couple months. And then I didn't know anybody after that. And I had decided, you know, halfway through this diehard year this hell year, that, yep, going to go to Los Angeles. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to go back home to Kentucky, gather my shit, gather my boyfriend at the time. He was coming with me. And on June 1st, we are out. We are hitting the road June 1st. The night before we were supposed to leave, it was my boyfriend's last shift at UPS. And at this point, we were working overtime, double time, just saving as much money as we could, knowing we were about to move. He falls asleep at the wheel and totals the car. Oh, no. Complete. The car that we had just dumped probably three grand into to try and get roadworthy and ready to go. Was he all right? He was okay. He was asleep. They always say that um, yeah, about sleep people. You you're just tense up and uh, right, uh, right. Yeah, he walked. Wow. Fine. How did you end up getting <laughs> out of here then? Did you guys did you stay on on target or did you have to change and push back when you were going to come out? So um, my parents were like, okay, well, you like just calm. Let's take a couple weeks, reevaluate, see what happens. And I was like, no. And I was like, I, it has to be June 1st. And my mom was like, what the, what the fuck, like, why? And I was like, I'm just afraid if I don't do it now on that will. day, I never will. I'll, like, chicken out or something else will happen. Mm -hmm. So my parents, being my parents, are like, I guess we could drop you off. I guess we could, like, I guess, I guess we could take the minivan and, take, uh, you out to, take you out from Kentucky to LA, drop you off, and then go drive home. back. Wow. What emotions were you feeling driving out here? Were you terrified, or were you so young and just like, I'm going to go make a career in Hollywood that that fear didn't set in until later? Or was it a mixture of both? A little, a little mixture of both. Definitely like the, the more of the latter. The fear didn't set in until I was standing in this shithole apartment just surrounded by whatever boxes and suitcases we unloaded out of the minivan which wasn't a lot because whatever you could fit in a minivan, in a minivan right. with four other people plus five other people and I remember like my parents dropping me off they were dropping me off and they were leaving they were driving right back and my mom was just like bawling my dad's getting choked up he's doing the dad thing where mm -hmm. he's like mm -mm -mm. love you love you He's doing that thing, and I'm just like, 
It started to hit you at that it point. It started hitting mm. me, and I remember them leaving, closing the door, and I'm standing in this garbage dump, looking around, and my first thought was, okay, okay, I need a job. How do you get jobs? Got a newspaper, look in the back, looking for jobs. And there was this ad that said, we're looking for canvassers to help spread the word for the Democratic National Committee. Oh, okay. We need people on the street. And I was like, I can do that. And I was very thankful for that job because we would meet in Westwood at mm -hmm. our offices, mm -hmm. and then they would just pair you up with someone else, and they'd say, you're going to Silver Lake, you're going to Westwood, you're going to Santa Monica, you're going to Ventura, and... Spend the day out there with the clipboard. Uh -huh. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all those people that everyone just like pretends are on the phone for to walk by to go, you know, do you don't want to get stopped? That was me. That was you. I, I did that. My boyfriend at the time was working back in Kentucky, was working a job at American Eagle Outfitters. Oh, right. And he managed to get transferred to the American Eagle on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Highland Mall. So often when I was done with work for the DNC, I would go hang out on Hollywood Boulevard and I started noticing all these street characters. I could have my mom send me my tap shoes, I guess. I could like, maybe that'd be cool, right? So I was like, mom, ship me tap shoes. She did, just started tap dancing. People would gather, throwing in fives, quarters, blah, 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 da, da, da. And okay, and I realized if I kept going, people would just stay. They, they thought it was like a routine. Mm, that you they know? had a beginning and an end. And, then, <laughs> right. and then so I'm just like, mm -hmm. they're not leaving. I'm getting tired. Fuck, I'm getting tired. And then I did that for a couple hours. And I was like, fuck, fuck, I'm gonna take a break. And I pulled my little bucket aside and I sat down in Hollywood and Highland Mall and I started counting and dollar bills and quarters, and I had made 80 some odd dollars in like two hours. Wow. So in my brain, I'm doing the math. I'm like, well, I make $73 a day. With the clipboard. With the right. clipboard. Right. I just made 80 in two hours. Sure, it's in dollar bills and quarters, but that's 80 bucks. Two weeks into this, I'm like, oh, my joints and my feet are bleeding. Maybe this is, this is a lot to do <laughs> all the time. And there was this guy from Canada call him Canadian Batman. He kept walking by and every day he would walk by me and he would go, you're working too hard every day. You're working too hard, talk to me when you don't anymore. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And then he's like pulling out this like wad of cash and he's like, just take pictures of people as Batman. And I was like, fuck, fuck. And he's like, look, I'll do it with you if you wanna try it. And I'm like, you're Batman. Poison Ivy is one of my favorite comic book characters. I was like, I'll make a Poison Ivy costume. Turns out the majority of the public at large can't recognize Poison Ivy necessarily on sight. Right. Yeah. Right. The skeezy dudes were just like, hot babe, fucking leaves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm tree hugging. <laughs> right. I got Wife of the Jolly Green Giant once. That was my favorite. Wow. That's, I, that's uh, impressive. It's, that's inspired. That, uses, that yeah. takes some imagination. 
Honey, you know that guy you love from the cans of vegetables? <laughs> what if he was married? You know how you that's, hate eating your green beans? That's what she's tapping uh -huh. into. She's bringing representation to the canned vegetable business at last. A progressive cosplay. Yeah. I wanted my daughter to take a picture with her. Now say, eat your greens, honey. <laughs> right, right, right. What are some of the other outfits you ended up you ended up wearing? Well, it ended up transitioning from Poison Ivy one day when I didn't have Batman. And I was like, doing terribly, making no money, no pictures, nothing. Just standing there embarrassed. A little girl runs up to me and she goes, Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell. And of course, when you're starving and desperate in Los Angeles, you go, yes, <laughs> little girl, hi, <laughs> fairies, let's take a picture. And, uh, and I was like, fuck, Tinkerbell. And then about this time, I turned around and I looked at the El Capitan behind me and they were playing the Tinkerbell movie. Oh, right. That CG Tinkerbell mm -hmm. movie that they did. And so I took a picture with that little girl, had that realization, went, hmm, immediately walked down to Hollywood and Highland costumes, bought a pair of fairy wings, threw my hair up in a bun, and instantly became Tinkerbell mm. and walked back out, started just cleaning house. Really? That when, was the that was the the ticket. That was the ticket, and then I I eventually made like an actual Tinkerbell costume, one that looked like the movie, uh, that wasn't so poison ivy. Did the whole like heart shaped thing, poofs on the on the little little shoes and everything, and um, when those Tinker because then they made three of those damn Tinkerbell movies. They did. Oh, um, so you just. <laughs> you made more money off those Tinkerbell movies than the people who made them probably, probably did. did. Right, right. And like on a good summer day, or you'd stand out there for like eight hours, and like if those movies were going, I can make like 500 bucks in tips. What was your biggest takeaway from that experience? Because for people that move to LA at a young age like you do to try and make it, um, of all the odd jobs they end up working, yeah. that's usually not one of them that you hear about in LA. So yeah. it's such a unique uh, experience. I want to know what you what you took away from that. That is an excellent question. Um, I, I'd say it definitely opened up my mind to the amount of different people that there are in this town. Right. Because every person who was out there on the boulevard was working for some sort of different reason. It was all kind of always out of necessity, not because you chose that as a job. Um, and you just, you start to learn a lot. I learned a lot about the homeless culture in Los Angeles, because mm. some of these people were homeless. I had friends who were from overseas where their visa kind of, they were starting to run out of Ooh, money on, yeah. their, on their visa and needed something to supplement cash. Mm. And you just really start to see the different people who are willing to put in the time to get out there, work all day, because you're your own boss. No one's forcing you to get out there. So one thing you can't deny about people who are working out there on the boulevard is you're busting your ass. Mm. Yeah. You know, like it, it was a hustle. I took away from it that 
maybe maybe I am a hustler. Yeah. <laughs> you worked hard for three years after getting here. That takes that's uh, to get up in the morning and go back down there and face the kind of stuff that you probably face. Yeah. And that I see those people face when I go down there is definitely keep going. develop thick skin and hard yeah. work ethic, which you already clearly had to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's... A friend of mine once uh, called me a gritty survivor mm. when I was working on the boulevard. He was like, you're like this gritty survivor. And I was like, thanks. I've been through some shit. Yeah. I know what, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's in my blood now. And were you taking auditions and doing stuff still during all of that? Just I kept was, it going. You never yeah. let that part die. No, it was I'm, still this is I'm doing this until this happens. Yeah, it, it was like the only flexible job because I could go and bust my ass for 12 hours if I wanted to, if I needed to make rent, and then if the next day I was shooting all day, I didn't have any boss to report to. And then you I could, could just, just go, go in do for it. two hours if you wanted or not at all. Right. Mm -hmm. So I ended up signing up for an improv class, like the cheapest one that I could find. Mm -hmm. Um. And I started kind of taking classes, and that introduced me to other creative people. We started trying to make web videos. I ended up meeting this girl named Becky Young. Becky was a part of this little web series at the time that I was a fan of and was watching called There Will Be Brawl. Mm, right. One day she was like, I have this idea for like a kind of pop culture nerdy sketch show. It's going to be like SNL, but nerdy. And I want to bring you on as like a writer actor, just like the good old days of SNL. And I was like, yeah, okay. And she calls this meeting at her house. And we're sitting there, we all brought ideas. And she kept being like, let's wait a little bit more because Matt's on his way. Matt's on his way. And I'm like, who the fuck is this person? And like 45 minutes into the meeting, in comes this two people. It's two guys, Matt Mercer and Matthew Key. Oh, wow. And Matt walks through that door, and it was like... Slow motion. Yeah. Dealing fiend. Shampoo Sparkles. commercial. Just right. Yeah. Right. And I was like... Glory. What the fuck is this guy? Mm -hmm. Immediately taken with him. Um, I always like to say, like, as a cynical, jaded bitch... Love it first, love it first sight. Mm -hmm. Would not believe it if it wasn't for Matt Mercer walking through that door. Changed your mind completely about the concept. As of... soon as I saw him, I was in love. Wow. Fucking in love with that guy. <laughs> and uh, That's rare. Yeah, yeah. He was funny. He was this like gangly, long-haired, still had glasses at the time, nerd. And I was just like, mm, just my type gangly nerdy boys mm -hmm, mm -hmm. making video game jokes and that kind of ended up like that whatever we were trying to get together to write didn't end up happening but that that web series thing yeah the right. web series thing but that introduced me to matt mercer mm. matt key my friend tracy um all these other web series people all of them tony janning um, uh, yeah, a, a ton of people that make web series now. Woody Tondorf, still a good friend of mine. And, uh, we were all lowly internet shits. Like, just trying, and all of that kind of culture came from, well, this writer's strike is going on. 
I was getting frustrated because I kept getting cast as these super trite roles mm-hmm. and was like, I know I can be like the super nerdy girl who's like, like I, and I, I knew I could be this tough badass who could do this and no one wanted to give me a chance right. in, in Hollywood. You know, you have to show them what you can do. No one's going to give you a chance. You have to show people yes. what you can do. Mm-hmm. And once that started clicking in, that led to me doing Batgirl and right. stuff like that. Like it, it all took Online. off from there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so much of it was a little bit like self-serving, not just for me, but for all of us, because we were a bunch of talented kids who couldn't get work. So we just started being like, fucking take this we'll industry. We'll do it ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. We'll make it ourselves. Yeah. And so I'm I'm like very proud to say that uh, I was kind of a part of this weird internet surge that happened in 2007, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. I mean, right at the time, The Guild. Felicia Day was right. doing The Guild In the vacuum that of time. the way the industry was shut down, everybody just sort of started doing their own stuff online. Yeah. You mm-hmm. got to keep going. Mm-hmm. Your bills still have to get paid, you know, and... You have to work. You got to work. You better work. Got to work, baby. Work, bitch. <laughs> voice acting come into the picture i had eventually started dating matt right and was kind of introduced to all of these voiceover people i there was like a time where i was at blizzcon and i didn't interview liam o'brien but was part of the production like my co-host interviewed him at the time and this was like before the game it was like before anything i was still like a fan of him i took a picture with him in front of the Illidan statue. Wow. So I kind of started meeting all these people, Laura Bailey being one of them, you know, all, you know, Yuri Lowenthal. And one of the people that I met was Valerie Aram, who works over at PCB. Mm -hmm. And Chris Zimmerman, who's also a big voice director. Director, right, yeah. And both of them were like, do you have reels? Where's your voiceover reel? You got this like got this like interesting timber to your voice like I want to make you do battle cries and I was like nah nah I don't have a VO reel and they were like why not and I was like well you know I I think this conversation happened with Laura (laughs) I was like I don't know you know Matt's Matt's in voiceover and you know like they always say with actors dating each other can be weird and I was like it's fine like I'm kind of doing on camera work and have this video game thing going on and he does voiceover we kind of keep it a little bit separate that's his thing I don't want to encroach on his thing Mm. and Laura was like that's stupid and I was like oh okay and she was like yeah you should just do it like three people in like one week were just like that's dumb Make a damn reel. There's room for you both to live out your dreams. Exactly. Ultimately, right. Exactly. So I threw together a reel and blasted it out to everyone that I knew. And that, like, next week, Valerie Aram hit me up and she was like, glad you got this. I actually have something right now that I think you would be perfect for. Because we lost one of these actresses. And that was Margaret for Persona. Oh, did they ever find her? Yeah, they... (laughs) Turns out she got lost in Babyland. Got lost. Oh yeah. Other actress moved away and yep. decided to 
change your life direction, as happens, happens in Los all Angeles. Happens all the time, right, yeah. I'm um, thinking about doing it right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Every third week, <laughs> Every you have other a meltdown. Week. Yeah, it's true, though. There are those first few years in town when you're struggling and you're thinking about, I could just go back home and work a yeah. regular job and just be a regular person. Have a, and, have a house right? Have with be, a yeah. mortgage. Mm-hmm. That's cheaper than the rent that I'm paying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it just kind of hit at the kinda right time, for you. just immediately, and then it turned into oddly like the path of least resistance in my career. Mm. It was just, it just kind of started happening, happening from mm. there on out, and part of it was because I was a female actress with this lower vocal timber, mm-hmm. and you don't. There's plenty of of us out there. Me and Courtney Taylor right. go head to head mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely smoky voice women out there, but not not as many. And they were really looking for it in the industry at the time. So it just kind of ballooned from there. Worked out. Yeah. You and Matt are together. Mm-hmm. You guys have been together for a little while. You're living together. You have an apartment. Yes. And. How did you first hear about the idea of doing a D&D game for Liam's birthday? How did that, how did that happen? Um, probably in the average way that happens with Matt and I, where he'll come back and just rattle something crazy to me, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, oh, sounds okay, good. sounds great, right. sure. So he mentioned, he was like, yeah, Liam's been wanting to do this game for his birthday for a while, and, you know... And he, he was like, it's going to be a table full of all new people. None of these assholes know how to play. Mm-hmm, a daunting task yeah. at the beginning, <laughs> right? Because you guys had played in a game together yes. that he co-DM'd, right? Correct. He was co-DMing with Zach Hanks at the time. Right. And I was in that game with Taliesin. Mm-hmm. So we were already had that going on. So Matt was like, okay, I'm going to bring in Taliesin to be kind of one of the ringers. To help and be the person before, to, uh-huh, right, he to lead about by that. example. Right. And then Matt was like, would you be willing to be there to just kind of be an extra set of hands and help coach? I was like, yeah, sure. So that first game, I didn't actually play, but I was there. But I was just the disembodied hand that would reach mm-hmm. over people's shoulders and point to things point on the, to the character ability sheet. the check they needed to, <laughs> yeah, add this and this, right. Yeah, roll, roll your attack. Uh... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, plus seven, plus seven. <laughs> right. Got it. So that's that was my role the first the first game. What was that night like? Was it were you impressed at how everybody, you know, minus maybe a few people who weren't too comfortable, kind of slipped into everything and oh, had yeah. so much fun right away? I mean, it's it's now legend. Legend. How Laura Bailey mm-hmm. slipped mm-hmm. into that persona mm-hmm. so quickly. Right. I remember. I will never forget both Liam and Sam. Liam especially giggling uncontrollably <laughs> like school like schoolgirl giggles mm-hmm. for like the first 45 minutes I bet. he could not get over that it was even happening and you know it's us and it's Matt Mercer so I was like lighting incense and we had a ton of like tea light candles just all over the place and the music going and the lights were dim so we were really kind of going into the the theatrics of Leaning it. into the mood yeah. and the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it was crazy to watch. And yeah, it was, it was awesome. And you ended up joining the game 
after they decided, let's make this a semi-regular thing after Correct. that experience. I think it was me and Ashley mm -hmm. both came in when the decision was made to continue on. And so Matt was like, well, if this is going to be another D&D game, you know, I want to, you know, make sure my girlfriend is a part of it, because mm -hmm. this is a significant amount of time to do, so I want to make sure, you know, if I'm taking free time away from us, that you're a part of it. So... And you fit into the voice actors playing D&D thing, because that's who you were and are, and so yes. it seemed it was a good fit. It was a good fit. I mean, these people are all my best friends now, but at the time, I was so intimidated. I bet. Because <laughs> it was like, soon-to-be BAFTA award-winning Ashley Johnson mm -hmm. and Laura Bailey, queen of video uh, and video games, and and... Liam O'Brien, voice of Illidan. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that I made Keyleth kind of an introverted, fumbly, put her foot in her mouth type of character was because I was like, well, I might just do that a few times. So if I make it a part of my character, they'll never know when it's real or not. Because you're geeking out a little bit to a certain extent, so why not build in some RP that can... <laughs> Yeah. you know, coincide with what you're already feeling outside yeah, the game. Absolutely. I mean, I was at this, just thrown into this table of all of these people that I deeply respected. Mm. And just being like, I hope they don't just throw me out. Don't run mm. me out on a rail. Mm -hmm. Please don't. Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, don't be mad if I play bad or forget the rules. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You and I have talked about Keyleth for so many mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours on talks and, and panels and things like that. Was there a point in the story for you where you went, okay, I really, I don't want her to just stay this the whole time. I really want her to have a fleshed out arc. I remember when we did the Whitestone arc mm. and that was so focused around Percy. And so much of that was a lot of Percy's journey super upfront. And then that was when I started realizing, oh, my thing is like, it's going to take time. Mm. It is a journey. At the time, I don't think I really truly knew that it was going to be this huge marathon of a story. Mm. But it was after kind of seeing other people's stories play out. And I was like, oh, man. who? And I, I knew at that time that I really wanted to experiment with seeing how the world over a long course of time can start to affect somebody. Mm. You know, raising a child, it's not about nature versus nurture. I think it's nature and nurture. Mm. I don't know why we always feel like the two can't be, you know, or the two are mutually exclusive. Um, and I feel that way just about adulthood and just growing up in general, you don't change because suddenly you wake up one day and have a realization. The world impacts you. Things around you affect the way you react to them. The people you're living life with. <clears throat> 100%. They're all going to influence you. And that was a lot of what Keyleth was about. And her whole backstory was that she hadn't been affected by the world. That was kind of what I wanted to see where she would go. And, you know, at the end of Keyleth's journey, 
I kind of felt like she had the most melancholy of endings. You know, like Grog and Pike went on and were best friends forever and he was godfather to all these little trickfoot kids mm -hmm. and Pike and Scanlan went off and and Vex and Percy went off and had a bajillion kids and everyone was kind of happy except for Keyleth. And I think that's because with no barrier, with without that outer shell that people like the twins got as kids mm -hmm. to kind of condition you and make you tough against the world, she just took the full weight of it. Wow. Going back to what we talked about with the feedback, we'll call it feedback. We'll be nice to the trolls. <laughs> call it feedback yeah. that you got on the internet. Did that factor into the personality traits that Bo has? Did you think, was there any part of you that thought, <clears throat> I'm gonna be a little less risky this time. I know what annoys people because every time I open my phone, there's a hundred <laughs> messages telling me telling what annoys me what people, in, yeah. right? Did that factor in at all when you were? Um, I'm fascinated when it comes to characters, I'm fascinated with their faults. Because I think faults are what make people interesting. Mm. And the reason why I love acting so much is because it's just such a deep study of the human condition. Right. And D&D &D almost tops that in a weird way because you're reacting in real time to what's going on around you. Um, so with Bo, I knew she was going to be heavily flawed. And I don't know. I, I knew that she was still going to be abrasive. I think that people, people clearly found Keyleth abrasive. There are certain people who find Bo abrasive. I know there are a lot of people who just find me as a person <laughs> abrasive, though. Sure. So sure. what are you going to do? What's been fascinating me seeing the difference between Bo and Keyleth are the people... Some people who loved Keyleth can't stand Bo, and vice versa. Hmm. Much more the latter. I think much more people hated Keyleth but loved Bo. And I actually do find that fascinating because Bo is arguably more of a shit kicker and more of a selfish person, whereas Keyleth was just trying to do the best that she thought she could. She was earnest. Yes. She was very earnest. So earnest, mm -hmm. but just trying to do good under the worst circumstances. Bo has a little bit more confidence, a little bit more of that cocky, surefire attitude, but is kind of way more of a shittier person. Mm -hmm. And people fucking love that about Bo. It's interesting, isn't they it? They love that. I think it's a little bit of confidence. I think people react so strongly to either confidence or lack thereof. And we, as a society, hate mm -hmm. people who are insecure mm -hmm. in any way. Even if they're the better person. If you if people we sense insecurity on them, it's like it's like blood in the water for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially if if I'm someone who struggles with being insecure and I see someone who's insecure, 
it's like calling me out. Yeah. So I want to attack that thing because it's right. a mirror ultimately. And yeah. I hate that about myself. So I'm going to project that onto, right. And I think a lot of people with Bo almost feel more comfortable because I kind of think the majority of people feel like we're shitty. Hmm. So I don't know if that's the connective tissue. I don't know. It's totally it's a, a much different group. So there's the the character studies are yet to be turned in because there's no arcs that have really happened yet. But right. I, I am interested to see where everybody's going to go because they're not the they're not the archetypes that yeah the characters in the first campaign were. And I remember one of the things that actually I think bothered me the most about what people said about Keyleth. You know, she could annoy you, she could have been self-righteous, whatever you think, totally. I'll give you all of that. I remember kind of later in the arc when she was really trying to come into herself as a leader and accept the role of being Voice of the Tempest and having a hard time doing that. And I remember getting flooded with people being like, I hope that Keyleth sees that maybe not all people are meant to be leaders. Mm. Just walk away, abandon it. You're not cut out for it. Mm. And I'm like, why though? Someone can't grow and, and, and yeah. learn. And, and you right. can't be insecure and still be a good leader. Like why? Hmm. I don't, I don't right. know why, and I, I think it's because we have such a strong idea in our heads of what a leader is. It's stout, strong, and a little bitchy and bossy, but, you know, it's still the people's man. And, you know, right. I think, once again, any type of questioning or, or self-doubt, and people are like, can't lead, hmm. shitty leader. It's like, Leave some space. Yeah, leave some space. This, remember, this, this leader is human. It's not a little bit. It's not yeah. AI. It's not. It, it, yeah, it's not an immovable force. Yeah. Mm. So I'm, in a, in a way, I, I kind of took those. Those were the one comments that I was like, no, Keyleth is gonna lead. She's gonna show that that you can. That the people like Keyleth can rise to the occasion. Fuck you. Towards the end of the last campaign, amidst all the craziness that that presented yeah. um, in the game and outside of the game and the looming second campaign coming up, all the stuff that you guys had swirling around in your heads, plus all the other work you're doing outside of Critical Role, you got married in the midst of a, a shitstorm, really, of uh, good stuff. But yeah. uh, it was a tornado and a hurricane meeting each other. Yeah. What was that like? You guys have been together for how many years? Oh my God, uh, uh, six years. Yeah, six years when we got married. So we'll be together going on seven, coming up on October twenty first. Couple of weeks, your anniversary, yep. your first anniversary. First, congrats! First Thank you. You did it. Mazel tov. You did it. I did. I survived. He didn't file for. Was that when? What's the one before alimony? Uh, or uh, uh, what's it called when you um, before divorce? When annulment, you're like, annulment, annulment, right, yeah. right, right. Can't file for an annulment, yeah. so I'm doing pretty good. That goldfish night? Did you go home thinking that would be the night? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be lying if I didn't go home and I was like, the fuck, <laughs> right? The fuck was that? Right. You you dash my character <laughs> on the fucking rocks. I mean, turned out to be 
one of the very iconic moments of CR, so no regrets. Mm, no, but. none at all. Don't ever regret that. <laughs> no regrets. It's interesting because we've I've talked to, you know, the couples on the show about the the Taco Bell drive through arguments about what happened <laughs> in the game. You know, Laura Travis, you and Matt, Liam and Sam. Yeah. Um, but what was it like trying to plan a wedding and execute a wedding in the midst of the end of that campaign and all the stuff that was happening? I had no idea. It was going to be so emotional, and yeah, it, it, that was that fucked with our heads on a bet. deep level. I bet because that campaign coming to a close. I mean, it felt like saying goodbye to not only this person that you've had in your head for six, five, five years, but then also all these eight other imaginary friends, mm. and then. Vax walking off into the sunset and fading away was just like it was emotional and it, and it felt it felt like grieving mm. like we all kind of deeply aware we were in this weird kind of haze and funk and I, I don't know and that was like two weeks before we got married so I'm just super emotional I'm playing certain certain songs would play on the radio and I would just start bawling. <laughs> right. Just, just because, raw like, all the time. Just basically. raw. Mm. Yeah. Just knowing I'm about to make this huge life-changing move while coming out of this life-changing campaign and then just crying over people who don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Like my parents were also kind of at the end and maybe in the thick of um, a divorce. Right. So. That's right. That was happening at the same time. That's right. Oh, man. So it was like, I'm about to swear my love to this other individual, my undying love for the rest of our existence, while my parents were like, well, good luck. Hope it's better for you. Hope it turns out all right. I'm like, thanks, Dad. And he's mm -hmm. like, no, your mom's great. <laughs> right. Like, right. Like, this like, isn't oh, the confidence boost Jesus. I needed going into this. Right. Yeah. It was, um. That was an interesting time. How's the first year been for you? Oh, amazing. Oh, obviously. I mean, we barely see each other. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, if we thought stuff was crazy back then, fast forward to a year and here we are. I don't, we'll have like our staff or assistants tell us about something else that the other person has going on mm -hmm. before we hear it from each mm -hmm. other. Like the biggest fallacy is whenever anyone comes up and goes, what's Matt doing this Friday? And I'm like, oh, Couldn't tell you. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> right. You probably know more than I do. Right, right. Um, yeah, we're, I mean, it just ramped up. We're so, so busy. Do you like working together? Do you like working with them? I do. We, um, we actually have a pretty good working relationship. Um, we also kind of have different pillars, though. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, running the channel, I'm in charge of content and all that, and he's kind of the overall chief of creative for the entire brand. So he's just... He is truly the keeper of the critical world. He is, way. yeah. Right. He's making sure that we continue to have an ongoing story, that the world is fleshed out, that things are accurate. So he's so consumed with that, and that's, I mean, that's a full-time job Big on time. its own. Big we, time. We All of us basically have three full-time jobs mm -hmm. between VO and whatever the game is and whatever running the company is and then personal lives. It, it's... It's a lot. It's a lot. Right. 
Yeah, I, I miss him sometimes. We miss each other a lot. Like, I miss him too. Yeah. Like, I miss you, Matt. No, he's not really over there. Love you. I'm just, just kidding. Throw him, throw him some steaks. Here's your lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of full-time jobs, you are now the creative director of Critic Role. What does that job entail for the folks that are watching this that maybe don't aren't familiar with our weird jobs in this in industry and what yeah. those titles mean and stuff like that? Um, yeah, they're weird. What's weird titles? You were doing this at Geek and Sundry, and then when we came here to do this, oh, um, yeah. this is the, you know. Ultimately, the house that your brain uh, gave birth to in a lot of ways. What what's your what's your job as creative director like? So my job as creative director, I anything that you see that airs on the channel, I touch in some way, even if it's just final looksies, edits, anything Notes. like that. Notes. So I mean, and that comes down to. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to everything. It comes down to any type of promos we have, new shows, um, even down to what subtle branding we have in the backgrounds of our set. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all uh, show logos, you know, music, themes, anything like that has a little bit of my my funk. But you've also it. taken the shows from an idea to a reality too and that yeah. whole process before this before stuff even airs it's correct it was an idea on a piece of paper and then yeah. all of a sudden it becomes you know take all work no play for instance or this show it's here's an idea mm -hmm. how do we make that idea reality and then all the time the crew the sets you know all the post production stuff that's all that all falls under all you all under that yeah it's all yeah, everything starts with a one sheet mm -hmm. and a pitch, and um, either I'll have an idea or you will have an idea or someone else might come with an, an idea, and the first thing you got to do is get it on one sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. Not front and back, just give me that one what front sheet. What is it? Mm -hmm. I got to have at least a, the vaguest of notions by this one sheet. And then we take that and we drop it down on the table in front of everybody else, and we'll say like, I think we can do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. We pick it apart, really. Yeah. And then your job is to put together the pieces of what remains and turn that into something that's quality. Right. It's not easy. Yeah, it's, I mean, and sometimes ideas will change a hundred times throughout the process. You'll get new ideas, you want to go back to the drawing board, you discover more things. So, yeah, that, that whole process from start to finish in the creative and... I mean, even with, uh, like, All Work, No Play, we knew it was going to be, okay, let's figure out how we can take the podcast and turn it into a show. Mm. But we went through a lot of thoughts, like, is this going to be the type of show where you have confessional talkbacks into the camera, mm -hmm. and the guys are like, so, -na 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 -na, and or, or is it going to have, like, your classic hosty stings where they're like, hey, guys, so we're here at Goat Yoga. <laughs> you know, we didn't know how much interaction with the audience was going to be and then we went we decided to go super real world just wanted to catch your experience and then the we were kind of calling it the drunk history method mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where them reviewing it in it. studio and then kind of flashing back to what they did mm. um and that felt the most true to the podcast and what it was 
But yeah, just saying like, all work, no play, the show is the easiest part of the entire process. And right, then you have the to, rest is so difficult. People probably don't understand how difficult something like that is and how many right. hours. So what percentage of your week is spent working on stuff for the channel and then you're trying to fit in voiceover stuff at the same time and then you also have to prep for Thursday nights. There's a lot of days yeah. where you're here working on stuff up until last Max minute. is yelling at you to get in yeah. there to sit in for your seat. And then when you go home yeah. at midnight, you're still answering emails, emails and sending out. And... So your your week is... Yeah, hot. I mean, it's it's 24-7. And, and that's I feel like that's such a, a huge part about just the industry in general that people don't understand. Hmm. Is that if you want to make it in this town, your phone is always on. You're always checking emails. Half the time you're shooting on the weekends right. because people are working day jobs, nine to five during the, the weeks. You know, I spend most of my Sundays now reviewing edits, making sure things are good for between the sheets the day before, um, writing scripts, making sure whatever we are shooting the rest of the day, the, the week is solid. Hmm. And I mean, I have, we have an amazing, amazing team and I'm just trying to make sure like everyone is happy things are done but like if you if I didn't have a team that I could trust like I I show up to set and I know that shit's gonna be done mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's a that's great that's because we have Danny Carr we have Max James you know we have Steve Fallows we have all these amazing people that are good at what they do right and I think a lot of times they say if you're a boss or a leader to hire people and surround yourself with people who are better at your job than you are. Mm. And I thoroughly believe that. Yeah, it's tr that gives you a lot of trust. Yeah. Because you know that they're equipped to be able to... They're good and that they care. Mm. Taking a little bit of pride in your work goes mm. a long way. And I am so lucky that we have a team where... And I, I try and instill that as creative director yeah, we're a web company, we're moving fast, but at the end of the day, I never want to produce garbage. Right. I don't want to ever be crap. I would rather go quality over quantity mm -hmm. any day of the week. Mm. Um, and that takes a little bit of people who have to agree on the same thing. You know, yeah, we could let this one little camera position that's a little wonky slide and yeah this thing you know we you could and it would go faster but your your mentality care. right your mentality if someone says no one will notice your mentality is i did mm -hmm. so that's enough for me I to noticed. say let's find a better iteration yeah. of that thing if we can do better we should hmm. we should try and there's always going to be ways that you learn how to do better um and nine times out of ten I'm not the one who's going to know, mm. but you have to be, you, you can't be so proud or so egotistical that you don't know when to go and ask for help right. or find that person. You need another set of eyes on this thing mm -hmm. or ears, right? And so much about producing is just problem solving and organizing and having that trust. Like mm. that's all producing is, mm. is you have an idea, you have a goal and you have when it needs to go out to the public, and then just from point A to point B, you just have to make it work. Wall-to-wall -wall stuff. What's your hope for all this? What's your hope for the future for this thing? Man. No, that's a very big 
question. <laughs> yeah. So many ideas. So many thoughts. So many ideas, right. Goals in my head are, are very far-stretching. But for the most part, I am just such a deep believer in what Dungeons & Dragons and, at the end of the day, storytelling mm -hmm. can be. And that's why I love this little show. It's the stories behind the storytellers. Like, what everyone is still doing on the show is still just telling stories. Mm -hmm. And those stories can deeply impact people. And we're seeing that, right? Yeah. With everything that this weird show has spawned. It's, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's got to be living in your head when you're thinking about shows and, and how people's what, how people will react. Not, yeah. oh, I like this, or no, I don't like this, but really the, the people that write and say, wow, that, I wasn't expecting this thing to yeah. really hit home for me, but it did, you know, and you're thinking about that stuff. Yeah, and, and there's, there are different ways that content can change people. You know, back when we were doing Signal Boost at Geek & Sundry, it was very lighthearted, it wasn't... You know, it wasn't emotional stories that people can relate to, but it was, hey, check out this new thing. Mm. And I still get messages to this day being like, I discovered this because of Signal Boost, and now it has completely changed my life. Right. Um, you know, and then there are certain shows that I call, that we watch all the time, that I like to call Cheese Whiz for the Brain, mm -hmm. where it's just, it's not meant, don't think too deep. Right. About it. Right. It ain't that deep. Right. And then you need those too. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when you've had a deep day, all you want to do is go home and turn on the Great British Bacon Race or right. whatever. Or you watch just... Sam and Liam attack each other and exactly. yeah, have fun. And have right. And just mm -hmm. have fun. Mm -hmm. And that can totally change someone's life who's maybe had a terrible day or a terrible week to just be like, Oh, thank God this is something that's not going to weigh on my brain like mm -hmm. a lead balloon. <laughs> right. Um, and I, and there's all of that is necessary. All of that you need. We need comedy in our lives mm -hmm. because it reminds us to laugh even at some of the worst things in the world. But we also need realness and sad stories in this drama to be reminded that life is hard, mm. and at the end of the day, we can all relate to that. Right. Life is hard. Yeah, ups and downs. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think the more that people talk about that, the more you just start to realize that we're all in this boat together, man. Mm -hmm. We're all the same. But you said it, quality over quantity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you only have so much time in the day. Fill it with something substantial. Well, you're the youngest of us. You're, <laughs> yeah. our, you're our token stoner wild card. Yeah. Um, I always say uh, y'all are welcome for me bringing down the age group average. Thank God. I'm that bell curve. Y'all been wanting a, to. Watching a bunch of, you know, 40-something-year-old dudes all the time get so old. I'm not 40. I'm far from 40. <laughs> but there are people here who I... Yeah. I have to say thank you for not only joining me today, but for all the work you're doing for this weird thing that we've made and yeah. um, for sharing what you did today. It probably wasn't too easy, um, <sighs> yeah. but I know that it's shaped who you are today and there's a lot of people that are going to watch this that have probably been through similar things and to see someone end up so successful and so accomplished <laughs> before they're 30 years old. 
um, especially having gone through what you did, I think is a testament to who you are and your resilience. I'm not trying to make you cry. <laughs> I'm just, Barbara I'm Walters. Just, no, I'm just again. speaking the truth. Um, um, but thank you. I, 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 for one, really look forward to everything your little yeah. weird hands touch. We're going to make so much dumb shit. It's going to be great. Probably. I love it. I can't wait. Man, this, I mean, this little thing brought me and you together as partners, too. Hey. Oh. Now I have 50% of all the money in the world. <laughs> what was that alimony I was talking about earlier? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that still? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I. Good shit, man. I have so much left. You do. I, so many of these have happened. Well, there's so still many. a couple hours left in the day. <laughs> I'm just going to walk around town with this thing for the rest of the day and be like... Uh, can you take yeah. a look at this? Mm. Is this? Mm. <laughs> we have an open, Looks good. Uh, open carry in, right. in the CR studio. In the studio. You That's can, for alcohol, you can, right? Not guns? Uh, or is that you mean both? an open container. Open container. I think open carry is guns. You're Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. Thank you a million times over to our pal Marisha Ray for opening up and telling all the stories she did. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or leave us a rating or review. Until next time, don't forget to love each other.